Welcome everyone, this is Carlos from Seedcamp. Today I have Alex Kayal, Head of Europe for Salesforce.com Ventures as a guest. And we're gonna cover a lot of topics. We're gonna to talk about his background, but we're also gonna cover a couple of topics that we haven't covered on this podcast before, which is corporate VCs, mergers and acquisitions, internationalization, and how to scale companies in the context of a very large, large growth rate. So thanks for joining us, Alex. My pleasure. Uh, let's start with the background, as we always like to do. Uh, maybe you can share a little bit what you studied in college and what was your first job right afterwards. That sounds good. So let's see, I came into undergrad thinking I was going to study international relations, um, really thinking I was going to go and do diplomacy. And so that was the original kind of outset. About a semester in, I realized that was never going to be Alex's path. Uh, and instead, as part of that degree, I ended up having to take an economics course. And so I took economics, fell in love right away. And so that was eventually what ended up majoring. Uh, I pursued both because I really liked the kind of international piece to it, but it was, it was much more uh, kind of international economics than pure play, diplomacy, or history. Um, so a lot of fun there. And then, um, you know, towards the kind of third and fourth year, uh, so junior and senior year, I started thinking about what I wanted to do next. I'd done a bunch of internships and a bunch, you know, some energy companies, some consulting companies, um, even as a kind of uh, salesperson at a brokerage house. Investment banking kind of came up on the radar. Um, and to be honest with you, if I think back, like I had no idea what investment bank did. <laughs> um, back then, it was a, a black box and a bit of a gray zone. Um, and so uh, just kind of through networking and really through chance, ended up meeting um, the CFO of the bank, which had also studied at Boston University. That's, that's where I was doing my undergrad. And an opportunity emerged to kind of join him and his group um, out of college in New York. So I did that. Um, and so that was my first kind of stint straight out of college. A lot of fun. Uh, you know, the bank, this was back uh, in 2005. So Merrill Lynch at the time was um, kind of an international, um, you know, investment bank, about 20,000 people going on to 60,000, given the kind of the wealth management piece behind mm -hmm. that. Uh, and it was pretty much anything under the sun from kind of ad hoc projects to, um, you know, some M&A strategy for us, to how do we think about investor reporting, uh, kind of coming out of school, not knowing a whole lot about the world. It was, it was pretty, you know, I'd say quite a deep dive into that. Uh, and then a year in, got to figure out actually what investment bank actually does do. Um, and that's when I got excited about doing some M&A work. Um, you know, in particular, kind of helping companies uh, think about their acquisition strategy and, and how to exit uh, and how to grow that way. So I ended up moving to London in 2006 um, and did that before before going to business school. So still still remember uh, still remember those days. Um, a lot was happening both on the IPO markets and, and the M&A side of the world. For those that are listening that aren't familiar with what an investment bank does in yeah. terms of M&A, maybe you can give us a crash course on how a banker might help a company during an M&A process, when to get engaged, what does that mean? How do they price? How do they provide access to potential buyers? How do they manage that whole process? Just give us a quick, a quick crash course for founders that are exploring what selling a company means. Yeah, it's a great point. And, you know, I think for most things in life, we, you know, whether we are getting legal advice, whether we're, you know, thinking about buying a home, we'll often ask our friends, like, what's the you know, advice? And, and so the word that comes to mind is kind of advisory. Um, you know, a bank at the end of the day is really there to uh, to really just help through that process in terms of they're, they're doing it day in and day out. That's their expertise. Um, so it's everything about how you should position the company. You know, what's the equity story you're saying? Um, you know, what potential kind of buyers should you be thinking about? You know, I think what's interesting is in the last, especially the last four years, the buyer universe in terms of tech companies has really emerged outside of the traditional realm. And so we can talk about that a bit later, but thinking about who should you be 
putting on that list. And then also thinking about valuation and process, which are two of the biggest things. You know, how what what can my be business what can my business be worth, and how do I get there? Yeah. Um, and on that second piece, you know, in terms of process, you know, I think kind of understanding what that looks like. You know, banks are, are typically, as I said, doing that day in and day out, and so founders are so focused on growing their business. Uh, building big companies, hiring, uh, you know, M&A is kind of not what's in their ordinary day-to-day life. And so uh, a bank can kind of be an advisor to that as part of that journey. So let's explore two things you said there. One of them is valuation, right? Another one we kind of alluded to earlier is the, the sell and buy process. Valuation for early stage companies for investment is one thing, but valuation from the point of view of an acquirer, how is that usually done? Yeah. So if I, you know, I think looking back, I mean, I think it really depends kind of what's being bought. You know, I think um, if I go back to kind of my M&A days back, back in at Merrill Lynch, a lot of it was depending on the stage of the company, you kind of think about that differently. Right. But I, in today's world with a lot of tech companies, you know, some, some acquisitions are purely for talent kind of hires. Some acquisitions are really for growth and, and thinking yeah. about new markets. Yeah. Um, and so really it, it goes down to the stage of business. I mean, it's actually not too dissimilar to kind of when you're thinking about as a VC and when we're pricing a term sheet, you know, at the very early days, it's much more of an art than a science. Uh, when a company doesn't necessarily have revenue, might not even have customers in place, that's more of an art at that point. It's always an art, but it gets more scientific as you kind of evolve and as you grow and as there's real fundamentals in the business. And so, you know, I think in markets ebb and flow, you know, I think what's one of the most interesting things is driving M&A today. There's been, you know, July, I can't keep track anymore, the numbers of deals that have just happened. Uh, and we still have one more day to go. So let's see uh, what happens today. But but, but if, you, if you think about the way that founders sometimes might be anxious about catalyzing an acquisition, the typical question, you know, several of our companies have had the question asked by a potential acquirer, how much do you want to sell for? What is, you know, what, what is that sort of indication of your shareholders? What is it that you give as advice to the founders that you work with, but also if you were in a, on a panel, if you will, and this topic came up, yeah. how would you guide a founder through, through that early conversation process? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think it's a, it sounds a bit cliche, but I do think it's true. You know, in my experience, the best founders uh, and the ones that end up having liquidity events for their businesses, they're, they're not thinking about M&A. You know, they're really heads down kind of thinking about how am I going to build the best company I can? And M&A comes to them as opposed to them chasing that. Um, and I think it's, it's a really important distinction because it impacts how you think about, you know, what you're spending your time on. You know, what's the profile of the business? Is it... Um, cozying up to potential acquirers, or is it really kind of doing doing something super disruptive in the market, helping customers in completely new ways? So I'm going to stop you there only because I feel like if you are a company that is doing that well, then you have the luxury of probably having, if an opportunity comes up, of, of negotiating something better. But let's like shift it to a company who's maybe not doing so well, yeah, or is distressed. And you know, the founder obviously has put a lot of his own personal savings into the company. The company still has some value, yeah. It's just not at the position where you you say you know, the, the company potentially should be as a, as a downstream investor to receive more capital. Right. So now the only things that they have as an options is they either shut down yeah. when they run out of money or have a strategic buyer buy them. How, do, how does a founder in that situation manage the process? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, I think that's an intensely personal decision in terms of kind of how the founders think about that. Um, you know, I think question number one is, is there someone, you know, if a company is not doing well and they're unable to kind of raise follow-on capital, which... Um, you know, unfortunately, it does happen, um, and we've seen happen. Um, the question number one for the founder is, you know, is there someone where what we've built so far is interesting, or the team that we have in place could that be interesting? So I think 
at a, at a bare bones level, that, that doesn't necessarily always ring to say yes. Once it does say yes, um, you know, then there's, you can almost think of it like a decision tree. The founder then has a bunch of options they can choose from. They've, they can try to engage in that process um, or they could try to potentially, you know, raise a smaller insight around and try to keep going and kind of, um, and that's where I say it's so intensely personal because at the end of the day, you know, my conviction on this is, you know, it's all about the founder energy behind the startup. And at that point, you know, they've either, they either still fundamentally believe in that vision that started them and they're still, you know, there's just a gap between where they are in terms of results and where that vision is. But they really believe that if they, you know, maybe let go of a couple people, buckle down on costs and just do a small insight around, they can get to that next phase and power through. Other times I'll meet founders in that journey and, you know, they've kind of lost that that sparkle about the idea. They're, you know, they've the product market fit just hasn't been there. Um, and that's a harder conversation to have because then... Um, you know, you're kind of thinking of Monet as almost a lender of last resort. Yeah. Um, and that, that's tough. You know, those are never easy conversations to have. Um, but, it, you know, it can be a beneficial outcome in a win-win. You know, oftentimes, um, you know, we've seen a lot of companies where, uh, you know, the investors end up getting um, it repaid back, you know, their initial investment, which makes the founders feel really good about the outcome. They didn't lose any money for, the, for their investors. And they find a home. And potentially sometimes, you know, those challenges that, they weren't able to hit in the market uh, is a result of potentially distribution, technical prowess, ability to kind of hire. And that home can fix some of those. So the underlying vision doesn't necessarily disappear. It's just a question of kind of how you implement that. Um, and so, you know, those are those are very challenging discussions to have. I think it's, you know, as an investor, you kind of have to hold up the mirror um, and, and kind of speak the truth in terms of, you know, what are the prospects and how do things look, um, you know, founders are optimistic by their very nature and kind of what they do requires a sense of optimism and discovery that um, they see a potential that no one else does. Um, and, and, you know, we're all about trying to find the situations that materialize and get to that vision. But I think, you know, sometimes, um, you know, bumpy roads evolve and so m and can be uh, a good outcome. Mm. And in situations where that is the agreed course of action, where m and is now maybe, as you said, finding a home for the founder and finding return, returns for the shareholders, including the founder, of course, what would be the typical process that is, is initiated by an M&A advisor? And how do buyers, potential buyers, look at these kinds of opportunities? How do they evaluate them? And how is it that that's managed so that there is an outcome? Or do they run away from it like a toxic asset? Yeah, you mean if, if they're in distress, how does that? Yeah, because I mean, some of them being in distress just means that financially you might be in distress, but it doesn't mean that there isn't an intellectual property that has been created that is of value for someone. And so how does M&A advisor sort of manage that relationship? Or, or you know, what do you recommend, even if there is no advisor involved? Uh, super interesting question. And, you know, my answer there is is probably a bit pessimistic in the sense that, you know, I think distress is is, is bad for a founder, right? I mean, I think when, when you get to the point where your options are, are almost, you know, very limited and you're thinking of shutting down or, or potential kind of fire sale, th- that's the, you know, the least amount of attention. You know, it's, it, it, there are similarities with fundraising. If founders think about kind of their journey when they fundraise, the more tension there is in the process, the more interest there is, the more optionality a founder has, the better outcome they're able to generate usually for their company. Um, and that's, that's the same in an M&A situation. You know, I mean, I, looking back and kind of the conversations with, with some founders that have been in this tough situation, you know, if, if you're at a point where, you know, everyone around the table kind of knows it's this or nothing, um, it's hard. You know, leverage leverage is an important factor. And that's, you know, going back to kind of one of the earlier questions you asked around the role of the advisor, their job is really to drum up that tension 
and create it. But, you know, you can't hide behind the reality sometimes, right? So I think being smart about, you know, really self-aware about how your company is progressing and kind of having these types of conversations when it's not, you're, you're kind of up against the wall uh, and completely desperate and, you know, almost in a fire sale. I mean, that's, that's a situation where it's very hard to extract kind of value because unfortunately, um, you know, this is supply and demand. And mm. it's just like in a fundraising environment when there's a lot of interest and appetite, it drives up the price. Um, it, it's, it's no different in an M&A outcome. Mm. I, I use the example of buying a house. Yeah. You know, it's everyone at least has rented, you know, a house before. Many people are in London are <laughs> trying to buy given the pricing here is a bit crazy. But nonetheless, you know, we've all experienced... Um, you know, if there's a house that's derelict and kind of in the middle of nowhere that no one wants to touch, the buyer is not going to be able to ex- extract a lot of value, right? And it's no different um, with a company. If you're in a great market with a great set of metrics and an amazing team uh, and doing great work, you're going to be in a very different situation. Yeah, no, it's, it's a very good analogy. So, you know, it's very interesting that the experience that you had, but you decided to go back to business school in London. You know, you'd moved over here in 2006, as you had mentioned. Walk us through... What, what you, what you were focusing on then? Was it a transition period for you? Did you, did you know whether you wanted to go back into banking? What, what happened then? The, the best thing about applying to kind of business school or any kind of degree and kind of leaving what you're doing today is that it forces you to kind of take a step back, yeah. look at the mirror and kind of figure out what is, you know, what does Alex want to do? What, where do I want to take my career? What, what excites me and what do I want to do next? Um, and, you know, after having done M&A for a while, I, I, I still think it's a great kind of first job out of, um, you know, when you're starting your career. I think it's less, for me at least, was less of a lifetime thing. You know, I, yeah. I kind of had the itch of, um, you know, either starting my own company, certainly being more exposed to tech uh, at, the, at the grassroots level as opposed to kind of much later stage on the advisory side. Um, and so I kind of, you know, the easier decision was figuring out I was going to leave banking. The harder decision was exactly what to do uh, and to put some market context behind it you know this was back in 2008 um the world was kind of upside down in a lot of ways you know financial the the market had kind of collapsed and there was a lot of uncertainty and actually um from a kind of you know exposure to a lot of interesting new people i thought business school would make actually quite a lot of sense and, and from a learning perspective so um you know i was very fortunate applied to a couple uh different places got into hbs uh, harvard business school in boston and so i ended up doing that for two years and you know looking back um, it was a phenomenal experience, you know. I think um, just the types of people you meet um, in, in 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 that environment really broadens your mind. You know, you you kind of um, you know you, from a different walks of life, whether it's geography, whether it's industry, whether it's kind of passion for the world. I mean, you're just surrounded by people that have so many different interests, and that that was a really uh, unique experience for me personally. At least, I grew a lot in those in that time. Um, and I think the, the result of that was, um, you know, having both more confidence and more comfort with what it is I wanted to go do next. Um, you know, I'd always loved tech from a, from a very young, you know, I was programming when I was 14, 15, um, and just has always had this fascination. So that was the opportunity really to kind of repivot, double down, um, and, and, and focus on that. And that's when you founded Table Zest. It is. Yeah. So I, um, you know, I, as I said, for even when I was, I remember when I was uh, in, in banking, I, I, had, I kept an, a list. It wasn't an Evernote back then. It was an old school piece of paper of kind of startup ideas and, and always wanted to, to try my hand at being a founder. Um, and I just never really had something that I thought had enough conviction up until tables asked. 
Um, and so it was, it was um, you know, the idea there was really, and we'll talk about market timing because I think mar- market timing has a lot to do with this. <laughs> do you remember your pitch? Do you- I, I do. You know, the pitch was helping restaurants be better at managing customers. You know, that was at a very simple level. Uh, and it's funny because I'm not at Salesforce, which is a CRM company <laughs> in a lot of ways. Uh, but, you know, restaurants are really bad at thinking about customer loyalty, uh, efficiency at the restaurant. Um, there's just a lot of uh, challenges that restaurants face. You know, similarly with the, you know, analogy of, you know, we get the best advice we can by, by hiring sometimes and, you know, working with lawyers when we're not lawyers ourselves. You know, restaurateurs are not in the business of thinking about, you know, efficiency in their business and customer loyalty and technology, they're in the business of putting great food on the table and creating that experience for us. Um, so Tables Est was this gap between um, how restaurants manage that, you know, and the only real piece of technology that had disrupted restaurants, if you think about it, um, was traditional kind of pen and paper getting replaced with a reservation book. You know, Open Table had really evangelized that whole space. But beyond that, um, there wasn't much, you know, in 2010, 2011, there really wasn't much there. Um, and so, uh, you know, took the plunge, um, which was one of the, you know, a scary decision at the time, you know, leaving, you know, have, having had um, pretty safe set of jobs prior to that, kind of taking that plunge and, um, you know, jumping into the unknown. That's, it's, it's awesome. I mean, it, it definitely, it's, it's definitely one of those things that is, is a tricky transition. And, and if you look back now from, you know, your eyes is in, in the venture world, yeah. you probably have like a mental postmortem <laughs> of what happened. Do you, you want to maybe give your sort of like the, the highlights of the postmortem that you probably still think about occasionally when you see something related to it? Yeah, for sure. Um, and it's something that, you know, it, it took a while after kind of folding it to really think through that. Um, you know, I think one is the, just the importance of like having a great founding team. So I, I was a solo founder. Um, and, you know, to be fair, I, I still, you know, when I meet founders that are doing it on their own at the, at the early days, I, you know, I, I push back on them in terms of why they've decided that. It, it's such a lonely journey. And it's such hard work. Um, there's so much to get done. Uh, and it's different hiring someone than having someone who's an equal, even if they're not necessarily kind of equal on the cap table. Mm-hmm. But a founder from a partner perspective, you know, this is someone that's there for me. I'm there for them. Um, and so, you know, I think that's critical. I think, you know, and there's been actually looking back, there's been a lot of literature um, and studies that show that actually founding teams that have two or three folks mm. do better than teams that have one. And that's not to say that, you know, the, the one thing about venture is there's no rules, right? I mean, we rules are broken all the time by exceptional people. So mm. it's not like we wouldn't back a solo founder. But I think the bar is that much higher in terms of, um, you know, getting that done. I think another kind of lesson looking back is just the importance of, um, you know, the, the timing in the market. So it's incredible how if you look at a company like Uber, you know, Uber is just completely disrupted in industry. Um, but fundamentally, what they're offering could have happened 10 years ago, right? From a technology perspective, there was a catalyst in the market, which was mobile phones and just complete availability, both on the driver's side. And it was really around the drivers that did it. You could have gone on your desktop um, and booked an Uber online, but it was the fact that the drivers all had these yeah. roaming computers, right? So if if that idea was four years or even three years behind, yeah. you know, would it have taken off? And so it's critical to think about, and one of the things investors, you know, as a VC, we think about a lot is what's the catalyst in the market? You know, why now? That, that question of yeah. what are the forces, what are the trends that are driving, you know, this adoption, this behavior, especially... On, on the timing thing, I mean, how much... You specifically versus Salesforce ventures, but regards to timing, yeah, 
Do you generally find that you try to preempt certain events? For example, is uh, a Brexit situation likely to generate a new type of customer demand or a recessionary outcome, which means that these kinds of businesses are likely to do better than these? Is it that is timing in your organization or maybe something you do individually thought of in that way? Or is it more of there's a momentum gathering around something and then you're just going to capitalize on that, but you don't actually take a, a preemptive view on it and back it? Yeah, it's super interesting. I mean, I think, you know, there's always these blocks one. I mean, Brexit for us was something, you know, we certainly weren't expecting and wasn't kind of the outcome we were we were hoping for. But, um, you know, if you look back, actually, some of the best companies have been started in difficult times. Yeah. Um, you know, in the last 30 years, there's just been a repeated history of, in, in downturns, actually, some um, incredible successes. I think those two questions don't necessarily contradict each other. In other words, you can't have both. So yeah. you can still have a great company that's created in a downturn, and it's that downturn that creates the opportunity, mm-hmm. uh, but there's still an underlying momentum trend behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, To give you an example, we backed uh, a company called Universal Avenue, mm-hmm. uh, based in Sweden, um, and what they do is uh, sales as a service. So it's uh, kind of feet on the ground. They help companies knock on doors uh, and, and, and sell through really a, a freelance kind of model, brand ambassadors as, as they call them. Uh, and that's tapping into this entire new generation of, you know, if you look at how millennials think about jobs today, it's completely different to how you and I thought about it when we were that age. Um, and so they don't think about this permanency around, I'm going to go do a job and I'm going to spend, you know, three to five years there and, and learn. They think of it as, you know, I'm going to do a bunch of different things and I'm going to spend my time how I want. So that trend is an incredible catalyst for something that Universal Avenue is offering, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, could that idea have worked maybe five, ten years ago? Perhaps. But, you know, you kind of, as an investor, you want to back forces and in, 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 in markets that have a lot of momentum behind mm-hmm. them. Because at the end of the day, it creates incredible headwinds into that direction, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the questions that are typically asked of, of sort of... Um, founders is to come up with market sizing and and how big is the market it would seem that based upon your last point that the important point isn't how large the market is it's what speed it's growing in have you seen any any uh, recent uh, founders that are presenting in that in that view of like the speed of growth of a market and whether or not investors are cynical about these kinds of statements yeah so i mean i think um for sure you know and i think the starting point there is sometimes founders think they have to just present a really large number uh, and, and that's not that's not the point, you know. I think that the market has to be large enough, but it's more these structural considerations that you're referring to that's more important. I'll give you an example. We, um, you know, at my at my last firm, um, you know, I led our investment in the trade desk, at, and that was you know effectively a market that didn't exist two years before our investment. Mm. So, you know, you couldn't really think yet about entirely the size of the market because it was very nascent. You know, at the time that we invested. Still sizable, you know, it was kind of one to two billion of market, but zero a few years ago. And so how do you think about that? Mm. Right. And so what's the what's the lens at which you dissect the market in that regard? And and there, you know, again, it was that complete shift to programmatic buying. You know, what the trade desk does is it, you know, automates the buying and selling of inventory from kind of a manual process. Um, but all the structural points in terms of why the market was at that inflection point and the tipping point was there. Um, and so even though the market almost was non-existent before, we got comfortable about the dynamics at play and kind of how this company was going to go and take, take advantage of that. One of the things that we left off with was postmortem. Mm. And I wanted to make sure that we finished which ones <laughs> you had in your mind. So yes. we covered team, 
Obviously, we covered timing. Was there any other ones that you wanted to revisit? You know, the last one that really stands out in my mind is is just how hard it is. You know, I think um, I certainly underestimated at the time, and it impacts how I think about, you know, to, all I invest in is kind of enterprise B2B software companies. And so the sales cycle and, and how long that takes and the importance there mm-hmm. uh, is super important. You know, I think, um, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine who I, I think I can't remember where he sourced this from, but he you know he's joking. Well, you know, there's always a distinction between selling a vitamin and a painkiller, and kind of yeah. what the impact there is um, from how long it takes to convince people to use your product. And mm-hmm. I think um, you know, as an investor today, that kind of uh, you know greasing the wheels when it comes to actually getting people to sell is an incredibly powerful force. Mm-hmm. You know, I think founders underestimate. Um, just how vital that is from a kind of long-term growth creation for their business, the ability to get out there. Um, and sometimes it's just about positioning. You know, I think one of the hardest things that, um, you know, e- even when I was working on the trade, that, um, excuse me, on tables asked, was h- how do we communicate what we do? You know, are we uh, an, an inventory ERP system? Mm-hmm. Are we trying to disrupt reservations? You know, for, for someone who's not day-to-day in technology, even that positioning can be brutal. Mm. And so nailing that from, a, you know, as you think about product market fit, so how you communicate your product, who's the decision maker, how does that look like, why are they choosing you? Um, those are some of the most fundamental questions that I spend time on today as an investor. Mm. I know that you mentioned earlier that with Trade Desk, you were very involved from the very beginning and, and early, early days, and then now to a huge company. Yeah. What was the positioning review and uh, process for getting that out the door as you lived it? What what tidbits of advice would you have from both your experience with tables asked, but also with the trade desk in that regard? Yeah, you know, and, you know, huge credit to just how good the team is, you know, Jeff Green, the founder there and the whole team he's built around him. Um, so I think one is he's really lived to that mantra of hiring amazing people. Um, you know, as you get to the point of scaling, as you get to the point of uh, really trying to become a global category leader you you know you just can't do it anymore on your own and so surrounding yourself by the absolute top people you can have was kind of critical um, you know the other thing that really stands out is just how well the company was able to maintain its culture uh, and I know that's that's a buzzword that so many people throw around and um, but I remember when we were doing our diligence and the company was still you know relatively small at the time we'd ask just individually different people what 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 do you think of the what is the culture how would you describe it and I was shocked. People actually had a coherent answer. You know, usually you ask and it's all over the place. And I think they, you know, Jeff and the team just had that from kind of day one in terms of we want to build uh, a company, not just for the sake of building a company, but also because we want to take care of our people because we want to make this the absolute best place to work for anyone that's part of our team. Um, and that, you know, as a, as a, you know, kind of investor that, you know, I've gone all the way from seed to, to series E, you see it at the kind of 100 person mark. You know, there's, there's this, and maybe it's 50, maybe it's 150, but in that zone, you've got all of a sudden the founder might not know everyone's name anymore by, or, or their dog's name and kind of their, you know, their partner's name. Uh, they might not n- no longer interview every single person. And, and those are really big changes in a company. You know, if you think about the founder led mission and kind of making that transition from, you know, when you're everything and everyone, um, to really starting to kind of build that team around you and kind of in, in some way losing control. Um, that, I think, is incredibly hard for founders. And if you think about that scalability and kind of becoming a two, three, 500-person company, you can't do that unless you're, you have the right um, culture in place to allow that. Um, yeah. And I, you know, Jeff would always say, we focus on culture so much because we don't want to have, uh, you know, for those that remember cassette tapes, you know, when, you, when we were 
copying cassette tapes, you know, if you copied it five times to someone, the fifth version of that cassette was not as good as the original. <laughs> and so there was a fidelity issue in terms of, you know, the copy of the copy of the copy. So the only way you can maintain that is if, you know, when you copy from first iteration to second, you maintain that A plus quality, whether it's team, um, not, you know, not settling and hiring a B player instead. Because um, otherwise what happens, then you're, you're in a hurry to hire 50 people this year because you're scaling like crazy. Yeah. Um, you hire a B person, who are they going to go hire? You know, a B or C person as well. And so the team was just so adamant about that um, that I think it made a huge difference. Hmm. Very good point. Let's go back to where you were post Table Zest. What, what was winding down your company and, and sort of giving up on that? And then what was the next steps that you took? Yeah, so I, um, you know, I kind of uh, you know, knew I wanted to, to remain in tech and, and just loved investing. You know, I think... Um, you know, from even from the days of when we were doing advisory work, spending time on the principal side, when you're really thinking about not only providing advice, but taking the decisions around that, that was something that intellectually really resonated with me. And so I knew I wanted to, uh, invest. the hardest question was really around what stage do you invest? You know, because in tech, you can do everything from uh, angel seed, you know, all the way up to growth kind of pre-IPO, mm-hmm. if not public markets, right? I mean, there's an entire industry um, and that's one of the hardest questions I think to answer is how do you think about um, what stage do you want to get involved in? Where are you most excited about? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that took some thinking and some refining. Um, you know, I think particularly to Salesforce, you know, I, I, for me, the biggest opportunity and kind of why I decided to join uh, the team was just this huge funding gap in enterprise that I saw in Europe. You know, I think, um, you know, I've kind of my first move to London, I guess, was 10, 10 years ago now. Um, and if I look at the entrepreneurial and the ecosystem around us, there's just been an incredible growth. I mean, London today and Europe more broadly versus 10 years ago, you know, thanks to initiatives like you guys that have just really catalyzed this shift in terms of growth is incredible. But a lot of that is still consumer um, on the fundraising side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we thought um, and kind of my view on this was, you know, great companies in the B2B SaaS space will be started in Europe. They have been. We're seeing it day in, day out. Um, and so, you know, Salesforce had made the decision to really double down on that. You know, the opportunity was just kind of too good to ignore. You know, we had um, the team had written, uh, you know, our first check in Europe back in 2011, but it was being managed out of San Francisco, which is very hard um, just from, a, you know, venture as a local game. Um, and so that was um, an incredibly compelling opportunity. And I think the platform that Salesforce has makes it, you know, at the end of the day, every um, VC, no matter you know how great their track record or how good their firm, you know, there is a selling component, right? In terms of you know uh, the best investor, the best entrepreneurs always have a choice in terms of who to take capital from. That's that's just a, a fundamental truth. Um, I got really excited about our very differentiated position. You know, we're not we don't compete against traditional VCs. We work with them, and so we're we're almost a, a kind of a different value creation opportunity for the entrepreneur, which is a very different way of thinking about why we should be on the cap table. So the combination of those two, um, you know, and I had been in venture. I was going to ask you that question, but you went straight ahead. Okay. (laughs) The value value add, obviously, of of having a corporate VC involved. But yes, continue, please. Yeah, I mean, look, and I'm going to focus my response on on what I know best, which is kind of how we do it at Salesforce. Um, You know, we've been doing this now since 2009. Uh, We have a portfolio of about 160 companies all over the world. Um, and if you look back at the history of, of Salesforce, you know, we were founded in 99. We're still led by the same founder and CEO. Um, 
yeah, ecosystem was always a really important word to the company. And I think, you know, you look at the App Exchange, right? The App Exchange has just had its 10-year uh, anniversary, which is effectively an iTunes for the enterprise. A bunch of companies are built around that. Um, companies like Box, Evernote, um, you know, DocuSign, you name it. And so even even at the earliest days of, of, of the company's history, there was a sense of a rising tide will lift all boats. You know, the, the concept of cloud and, and, and CRM in, in the cloud didn't really exist. So this, this concept of SaaS as a business or technology model was new. And so we wanted to have more great companies built and focused on that. And so that was the impetus of the investment program about, you know, seven years today to drive that benefit to the ecosystem. And so fast forward today, you know, why... You know, if you're an entrepreneur that's kind of building a B2B SaaS company, you get access to that. Um, and I think that's an incredibly powerful thing because from a customer perspective, you know, we now have Salesforce has over 150,000 customers. Mm-hmm. Um, from a distribution access point, you know, thinking about how do you access those customers is really important. Uh, from a product integration perspective, um, you know, as a platform company, we're never going to be all things to all people. Mm-hmm. And so all this innovation that you're seeing uh, around us means that there's a lot of synergies that can be done. You know, oftentimes when our product starts and ends is where another company comes in and, and, and kind of does that last mile or does the next um, kind of iteration of that. And so from a product integration perspective, there's a ton of opportunities that can arise. Uh, and then the last one, um, you know, is really access to kind of the know-how. And, and yeah. that I'd break down into two pieces. One is, you know, the Salesforce know-how, which is, you know, access to our execs that have been, you know, running sales teams and marketing programs for years and kind of how we do it to be so successful. There's access to, you know, how do you think about fundraising for B2B SaaS companies since that's all we do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have a, a lot of precedents to think about. And then there's the, comp- the companies themselves. So this 160 group of CEOs that are all in enterprise B2B SaaS, that's an incredibly powerful um, peer group because you're talking about, you know, there's no consumer companies, there's no healthcare hardware um, it's all it's all industry focused, um, and so we're spending actually a lot of time this year trying to cultivate that. You know, we've just done a early days, but we've just done a beta of uh, you know letting our companies uh, have a community portal where they can ask questions, um, you know, really exchange ideas, build on that, and so you know that's that's kind of what's what's been driving that in terms of how we think about adding value. If um, if I if you don't mind my asking a question that's less about Salesforce specifically, but maybe just corporate VCs as a whole, one of the criticisms that's levied towards them is you know the, the fear that maybe some founders have of innovation being stifled or copied or potentially not being able to be part of the buyer's universe for when the company actually gets to the point where it could potentially provide shareholder returns. Mm. What do you feel maybe? ambiguating it from Salesforce, but just sort of broadening it up to the larger thing. Is is the general role of corporate VC in line with uh, what you mentioned you guys have as a philosophy, or is it generally something that uh, people need to approach a little bit more caution? Great question. Um, I, I would say, you know, the simple answer to that, and then we'll unpack it, is not all corporate VCs created equal. And so um, entrepreneurs should not assume that the way we do things is the way others do it and, and vice versa. And, you know, there's all different motivations for for why outfits exist, what the modus internally is, how that thinks about it. So I can't, you know, obviously there's thousands of companies that have um, done investments. And that number, you know, to be honest with you, I think will continue to go up um, as, as more innovation is, is, is done at the edges and more companies are looking to access that. 
Um, you know, there'll be more unfamiliar names that are, you know, just, I think the most recent one that was interesting to see is, I think JetBlue even is now doing a venture program. So in, in spaces where even you weren't used to seeing corporate VC, I think we'll start to see it. I think, you know, asking important questions around exactly what you said, you know, what is, what is the M&A uh, kind of, you know, situation, you know, can I sell to other, I think those types of questions are incredibly important. I mean, I think, let's put it this way, if a founder doesn't ask us those questions, we're a bit worried that they're not, <laughs> because they're so fundamental to how we run our program, um, that we want there to be that transparency. So, you know, for us, for example, we've had in the portfolio um, since inception, roughly 40 exits, which we're very fortunate to have. And of those 40, you know, Salesforce has been an acquirer, uh, about six, I believe, six or seven. And so that tells you something, right? Six out of six out of forty is, is is the vast minority. And so actually, we want our companies to be completely standalone. We want our companies to do well and to have exits. And so, um, you know, but that's not that's not necessarily how another corporation might think about it. And I think, you know, where that comes down to for us is, you know, one I mentioned kind of the ecosystem around on day one. Um, that's been critical to our company. I think two is we're just still such an innovative company. You know, Salesforce today is eight billion, you know, going towards eight billion in revenue, um, growing thirty percent year on year, still founder led, and so there is this, you know, kind of confluence of factors that allow us to to do what we do. That I think it would be hard to replicate, to be honest. Um, but I think the be- the best entrepreneurs need to be mindful of not all corporate VCs created the same. Um, really speak to other portfolio companies. Um, you know, it, you know, and it's different when there's a handful versus hundreds, you know, I think you just get more comfort around how someone is going to behave and kind of what the uh, outlook is there. But it's a super, I mean, it's something I, you know, I came from a traditional VC background mm-hmm. before Salesforce, I was at a venture firm. Uh, and so those were exactly the questions I was asking mm-hmm. in terms of how, how should, you know, how will entrepreneurs think about that? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it, 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 you know, and by the way, it's not just corporate VC, you know, I think if you walk into a venture firm, you know, you should be asking questions like how often do you follow on? Mm-hmm. What kind of value do you guys bring? Um, you know, what other experiences have you found? You know, it's, it, it's diligence on both sides. You know, investors, companies forget that they should be diligencing their investors. Mm-hmm. It's a marriage. You know, you're, you're entering into this for five to ten years plus. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's not like you should just take these decisions lightly. But mm-hmm. I think what we've seen in the portfolio is, you know, the ability for in, in, uh, entrepreneurs to really kind of create that story for them of I'm going to have both, you know, it's not either or, it's I'm going to have a traditional top tier financial VC um, who's going to help me on more, you know, traditional areas where it's hiring, introductions, um, governance, et cetera. And then I'll have a corporate who is in the heart of my ecosystem who will provide customer introductions, product, et cetera. Mm. Makes sense. I want to go back to internationalization. Uh, something that we had talked about briefly with regard to some of the other companies that you've worked with. One of the things is scaling a company internationally. Another one is backing companies in both sides of the pond uh, within the context you have right now. Does a European company really need to start thinking about later rounds coming and uh, potentially even being acquired by U.S. companies because the European ecosystem cannot sustain that? And how do, how do they think about that, if at all? Yeah, so I'm a little biased in this question just because, um, you know, I've kind of lived in so many different countries, been hopping back and forth. Uh, I'm originally from Geneva and so I've kind of been surrounded by 
um, you know, Geneva is an incredibly international city with the UN there, et cetera. And so, um, you know, this whole concept of building companies to be very localized uh, is never something I've been excited about. Um, and I think it's especially true today. So, you know, in the past, you could invest in businesses and do well uh, that were local champions, you know, markets that were extremely, um, you know, there would be a European version, a Latin American version, or even sometimes country versions, you know, so this was the French XYZ, this was the German, etc. I think those days are gone, certainly in the enterprise space. Um, and so when we think about, you know, how founders should approach that, um, we have uh, an intrinsic excitement when founders are thinking big and thinking global in terms of where they want to take their business. And so, um, you know, very early on, um, you know, the hardest question now is, I think, when you should go international as opposed to if. Um, and there's there's been some really interesting reports that kind of just show how, from an age perspective, when companies make this decision and kind of how long from, you know, how old do you have to be as a company to open your first non-local office? Mm. And how old do you have to be as a company to have, you know, say 30% of your revenue outside your home market? And those numbers are just shifting earlier and earlier, right? I mean, because of, the, you know, how easy it is from an initial capital perspective to start a company, that that's driving that. So I think, um, and that has two benefits, uh, or maybe even three. You know, the first benefit is you can, if you think global from day one, you're accessing customers everywhere, right? So there's a, there's a, market opportunity you just expand the size of your market if you do that two is there's a competitive angle right if you're not someone else will right if you're heads down just focused on one geography and that's it um you know eventually um you know you don't want to be you know it's, it's a competitive market right and then third is 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 exit you know i think fundamentally you know if you think about how an acquirer will think about your business to your point it fundamentally drives more strategic value to that parent company if there's some presence in the market where they're most predominantly in. Mm. And so you're just adding benefits across the board. You're adding optionality on the exit, you're getting to market faster, and you're building more sizable business. Mm. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's, and frankly, you know, that's where some of the smaller European markets have an advantage. You know, if you're, if you're in London, you can go a lot longer before you have to think about this. Mm. Uh, if you're in Stockholm, it's probably on your mind on day one. Mm. And when you say presence, can you just clarify whether you mean commercial presence or in the case of companies that are likely to have acquirers based in the Valley, do you mean physical headquarters, CEO type presence over there and as a preemptive move for internationalism in, in the U.S., potentially setting themselves up for the path of partnerships and M&A, or can they do that remotely? Yeah, so I think, you know, the CEO doesn't necessarily have to move to the Valley or, or, or to the U.S. I think there has to be some kind of senior exposure. Um, and, and, you know, we've seen, you know, uh, one of our companies, for example, uh, Cardo, uh, used to be called CardoDB, now called Cardo. They do mapping analytics. Company was started, great story there. Company was started in Spain. They've now moved the headquarters to Brooklyn in New York, and they've got, you know, about five people in San Francisco doing technical business development. And so that's an incredibly important role. Um, you know, so much of the ecosystem that they're partnering with, whether it's big technology companies, um, mapping companies, you name it, you know, business intelligence companies, a lot of those are based there. And so, you know, it's not that you can't do it remotely, but it, it fundamentally just adds an extra barrier, you know, whether it's time zone, whether it's ability to do this face to face, whether mm -hmm. it's cost. Um, and so, you know, you don't have to have your headquarters in those markets. You don't, the CEO doesn't necessarily have to be there. 
Um, but it's more about being strategic about kind of, you know, where are my customers? Where are the partners that I'm trying to nurture? And if that's an important part of your business and you're trying to build something that requires that business development partnership, um, you know, if you have to jump on a plane for 11 hours every single time versus just grabbing coffee and building that relationship, it, you're not going to do it as well. Um, and so, you know, I think in today's world, especially given how fast things move, you know, just the advent of, you know, the information today disseminates at a pace that we've never seen before. Mindshare is also important. You know, I think um, when you're when you're striking up those business development conversations, you want to be top of mind with these companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just having the ability to kind of nurture those relationships, be close, um, I think creates incredible synergies that companies, you know, then go and exploit. Mm-hmm. Well, we've covered a lot of ground and it's, it's been amazing having you here. And I'd love to even continue some of these topics in, in depth at some other time, particularly kind of how to help companies internationalize more. You know, I think that's a subject all of its own. But thanks for joining us. Um, and for those people that want to get in touch, what's the best way for them to reach you? So uh, Twitter, at uh, Alex Kale, um, or just, you know, salesforce.com slash ventures. Um, we're pretty easy to find. <laughs> Excellent. All right, thanks for joining us, and until next time, guys, bye.